Hello and welcome to another episode of the UK Airshow Review Podcast, the podcast we started when we had no airshows to review. My name is Sam and joining me today are Dom and Ian. And joining us again is Richard Grace, who I failed to introduce him properly in the last episode and I'll do it now, is Director and Chief Engineer at Ultimate Warbird Flights at Cywell Aerodrome. Uh, we're back with him. I mean, actually, it's only been a few minutes. We never left, but um, <laughs> uh, he's back on the, the episode, with, uh, back on the show with us today to talk about the operation side of things. So last week we talked about the upcoming Cywell 2024, which I'm sure by the time you listen to this episode, if you, hopefully you've got your ticket let's because hope so. they're uh, <laughs> let's hope they're on sale. Yeah. Let's hope there's, there's some left. <laughs> but um, if you haven't, but uh, we're going to talk about the operation side of things today. So thank you once again for coming no, on the no show. No problem at all. Um, we're going to talk about Ultimate Warbird Flights and the history. So actually, let's start off with, why don't you give us a history of the organisation and yourself and how yep. you started? And yeah, so I mean, everything we do is based around the Spitfire ML407 that my father restored, you know, finishing it in 1985 before I was even a year old. Um, and, you know, he was killed in a car accident in 1988. My mother carried on and developed it into what it is now, really. And then I kind of took over in 2000. And I guess 15 or something like that and, and and made it into a obviously more commercial slightly larger business whereas it was always set up to maintain our aeroplane it then yeah became commercial and we were able to do aeroplanes for other people and then we've been here at Cywell uh, since early 2015 um, and long may it continue and it's uh, yeah it's, it's all going fairly well we're, we're certainly very busy so. mm. And how did it develop from one Spitfire into, as we're looking out the window of this room, yeah. quite an enormous <laughs> amount of aeroplanes? No idea. <laughs> <laughs> I've never advertised, so I have absolutely no idea why anyone called me up, but they did, and I didn't say no. Um, so, and, and we've been, you know, we were just very lucky to have a, a, a few very good customers mm. that, that have got an appetite for interesting aeroplanes. And I guess if someone sees you do one interesting aeroplane, they give you a ring about their interesting mm. aeroplane, and it kind of goes from there, really. Um, so, yeah, yeah. try and do a good job. Try and do it for the right price. Simple as that. And 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 yourself. I mean, obviously, it's in the family. But, yeah. But how did you start out, and how did you get the expertise? Uh, I started out. You know, obviously, got aeroplanes in the family, so I've been interested and in kind of working on aeroplanes for most of my existence. I've certainly never wanted to do anything else. Um, I was lucky that the flight collection were willing to let me kind of do my work experience there, and then went there and clean drip trays and all that kind of stuff in the summers whenever I could. Um, started fixing flying club sessions when I was doing my flying license when I was 18. <sighs> That's about it, really. You yeah. know, just, just just then from there, obviously, I fixed push bikes for a year. Okay. Um, just <laughs> and, and, quite and worked in a car it? parts shop. And then, you know, saw the light and, and, and started working for, for, the, for the family business, if you mm -hmm. will. And, uh, yeah, never looked back. Um, I've, I've been lucky to obviously fly and fly all these aeroplanes as well. I got my license when I was just turned 19. Um, so, yeah, and, and I've just always, you know, I, I don't know how to do anything else. Simple yeah. as that, really. <laughs> um, so I guess That's I'll just keep doing this. A good thing to be able yeah. to, you know, how to do. <laughs> yeah. Does that run through all of your family or? Uh, no, not at all. Uh, I mean, my father, obviously, you know, was an engineer, not just aeroplanes. Um my mother was very much a pilot, um, so yeah, and, and my father was a pilot as well, obviously. So, yeah, but I've not, you know, my father was killed when I was four, so I've not particularly had the opportunity to learn anything from from him of, of consequence, other than what he might have written down in a book here and there. Um, yeah, my kids like Lego, so happy days. You know, maybe they'll carry on. <laughs> That's a good start. That's yeah, good start. maybe they'll carry on. Who knows? What was the first warbird that you flew? Uh, I've, was our, it's, so it's very hard to fly a warbird from an insurance perspective. Mm -hmm. So that's the general, my general advice to people. It's the only difficult thing about flying them is getting insured to do it. Um, I was very lucky that my mother was able to convince our insurers that it was a good idea that a 23-year-old with about 350 hours should be flying around in a Spitfire. <laughs> um, so that, you know, I was 23 and I flew it and survived. Um, and made a half decent job of it. Didn't mm -hmm. run it off the side of a runway or anything like that. Um, they did say I had to do 50 flying hours in it before I was able to do any air displays or anything like that, which was like the best thing anyone could ever say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I, I then 
fairly swiftly when I did that. I did that in you know for, in in a spring, pretty much mm. just just went flying a lot. Mercifully, my mother paid for the petrol, which was expensive, <laughs> but I've paid her back since then, so it's okay. Um, and yeah, just just sort of developed from there from a flying perspective. I mean, I was very lucky that owners of other aeroplanes were kind enough to kind of let me have a go in their aeroplane because it's it's an odd thing to trust a 20-something with your mm. very expensive aeroplane. So they either were looking to do an insurance job on it or were um, or, 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 thought, or thought I was um, or thought I was half decent at it one or the other I can't tell you which um, but no they're, they're, you know I've been very lucky that, that I've, I've got to fly a lot of aeroplanes of this ilk um, and I guess you know hopefully through doing a good job in them mm. but I think the primary thing and certainly something that I look for is, is people that have a an understanding of how these things work you know that is that's important when when it starts to go wrong is that you you do know how it works mm. and, and and people that just turn up having read the pilot's notes well yeah there's a bit more to it than that so one of the um recent podcasts we've had um talking about the meteor restoration um it's talking about who was that graham buckle that oh was. yeah yes, yeah, yeah. yeah sorry <laughs> forgot to name you there um he was talking about the trials and tribulations of sort of restoration obviously the meteor uh, isn't for airworthy purposes hmm. but um still a slog though yeah, yeah. talking about i think some of the frustrations um of things not not going right uh, and that sort of stuff hmm. but obviously um putting things together when it when it all comes together it, it's a real sense of achievement yeah um, what sort of uh you've had a lot of similar experiences um, with restoration yeah i mean the restoration's the thing that sort of i've always had a passion for very much as well as the flying but really the restoration is the thing that that is of great interest to me um it's a nightmare i mean uh, and it's we're, we're lucky now and i've certainly seen it happen since i've started doing it to now which is you know broadly speaking about 20 years ago i started restoring airplanes and there is seemingly somehow a lot more information now than there was back then you know from or at least it's a lot easier to access things like drawings and manuals and all I, that is kind that of stuff. because just the internet or there's definitely helped there's some great resources like for the for the american stuff like the air corps library mm. where, through air corps aviation who've just done some amazing restorations of mustangs and p47s and stuff they've um you know they've made a vast amount of manuals and drawings just you can anyone can look at them you know you pay you 60 bucks a year and, and off you go and i've just supplied them with most of my sorry that's the compressor um, <laughs> I, yeah, 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 things don't stop even on a Sunday. Um, I, I've just supplied them with all my Spitfire manuals and stuff so that they can put them on there actually because I just think it, for me it's a really useful resource that in the height of summer if I'm stood in the middle of an airfield somewhere trying to fix something I can actually access the manual. Um, yeah. So yeah. It. Uh, but no, I mean to come back to your question, yes, if you're working on something like a meteor. British engineering, like a Spitfire or a Tempest or a Hurricane or something like that, yeah, they're an absolute nightmare. Um, <laughs> all of them, broadly, just absolutely everything to do with British engineering. It's brilliant, like it's incredibly clever, and the way that we've developed to do things is, I mean, so, so different to how other people have used aluminium or steel or whatever um, in that era. Um, unfortunately, all of it's a total nightmare. Um, and, and a lot of the engineering... In, in, in what way? Ah, uh, just how it's put together. I mean, it's British engineering wise. I mean, I guess what makes it a nightmare? Well, access, you know, access to things. Things are not designed to be taken out of the airplane. They're not designed to be taken apart and put back together. They were kind of built and designed to just be built and go and never be seen again. Um, and I would imagine the Meteor's still got some of that stuff carried over from, you know, it's a World War II era airplane at the end of the day. It will still have some of the nightmares in it. One would like to hope they might have got rid of some of them, mm. but I'm sure they probably didn't. They probably just left them. Um, Spitfires we're kind of accustomed to now. We've done plenty of Spitfiring. Hurricanes, don't even get me started. <laughs> I mean, they are just, <laughs> yeah. Um, the Tempest is is definitely a very interesting one. Um, it, it's got some good things about it in that by the time the Tempest came around, they'd realised that you need to be able to remove every single panel to access everything, mm. and those panels need to be big, and you need to be able to get them off quickly. Um, so that really does help. Whereas if you look at a Spitfire, there's very few removable panels. 
Um, so hence why the access is quite so miserable. Mm. Whereas if you look at the Tempest, or even, I mean, a Hurricane, I mean, Hawkers were obviously just better at that because they knew they were making aeroplanes that were going to break every five minutes. Um, <laughs> they were better at providing access to those aeroplanes so you can remove every panel from the, from the back of the seat all the way to the spinner. You can get all those panels off very quickly. And certainly on a Hurricane fly, I mean, you'll be getting them on and off like it's going out of fashion <laughs> every flight. I'm just being overly <laughs> disparaging. Um, so a hurricane is a lovely aeroplane to fly. Absolutely lovely. But in terms can, of can, can anyway, <laughs> anyway, next question. Um, no, they're just they're antiquated. They're 1930s aeroplanes. Yeah. You know, they were absolutely at the forefront of what you know of development at the time, and and that was that was how they were working. You know. Don't, a year before it was biplanes, wasn't it? When the wheels yeah. didn't go up and down. So <laughs> it's it's no great surprise that the thing is not overly reliable. Um, and it's not reliable in like a, oh, it's going to cause a nightmare at an air show kind of thing. It's just unreliable like you land and oh, where's the hydraulic fluid coming from this time? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's that kind of thing. Um, and the, I, I guess the thing is, you know, with a Spitfire, certainly here we've got so much service experience that... We actually know where the hydraulic oil is going to come from before it comes from there. <laughs> yeah. um, so we can just we know what we need to pop a spanner on every year or every twenty five hours or every day, whatever it may be, you know, to to keep on top of it. Whereas certainly for us as a company, we have not got much service experience with the hurricane that we operate. Um, and as we get more, we'll, we'll get to know it a bit more. And same goes for the Tempest. You know, although we've restored the whole aeroplane, it's it's only flown twice. Yeah. So, you know, the best is yet to come. Um, we'll soon get to find out what is a nightmare on that. Um, I'm sure, well, we'll definitely talk about the Tempest later because mm. it's probably, I think, certainly from the enthusiast point of view, one of the most exciting aeroplanes that's come out recently. Yep. Um, but you, you're talking about how, obviously, there's there's so much knowledge about Spitfires, not just because, I mean, partly because you've been working on them for so long, but also mm. it seems to us that there's... The scene at the moment, the warbird scene, it's ridiculous. There's so much Absolutely. out there now compared yeah, to cool, isn't 20 it? years just ago. Like loads more stuff and people building things from nothing. Well, not from nothing, of course. They're starting with the required amount of aeroplane. Um, but, but, I mean, engineering-wise, we, we've had to develop a bit more. When the projects, when, when you start rebuilding ones that have come out of the ground rather than ones that have come out of a technical college or something, mm. you, you have to you know, develop it a bit more. But once you've pushed through that the boundaries that used to exist in the 80s and 90s where oh i can't rebuild that because i can't get x y or z once you've crossed that bridge then the doors just open up and you can build things and like the mark one spitfires that are flying around you know all bar one is they're pretty much new airplanes but yeah. isn't it cool that we can see mark one spitfires flying around i mean it's not something i don't think anyone would have ever considered probably 20 years ago they would so have laughed at the concept it's a technology thing yeah it's definitely made it, made and it's available. just effort it's you know the companies that have done that of which i'd like to point out we're not one mm. you know we have not done any of those restorations from absolutely nothing the the the, the fundamentally two companies that have done it have just put a huge amount of effort the, the information has always been there but it's the effort involved in making the bit that no one else has made before is yeah. vast um and the, you know and, and in all fairness not just the company that's achieved it but the we're very lucky to have the the people with the money and interest to put the money in to pay someone to do that um you know without those people it all starts with those people it all starts with the people with a passion and money to see something achieved um and yeah i'm very grateful certainly as a air show goer and general spotter as mm. we discussed in the previous mm. podcast i'm i'm really grateful to those people to be not just because we get to do that work here and, and and make things happen that were otherwise impossible many years ago but just from a broader perspective to to see things like the p47 as i said that's just been done at air Corps. i mean that's just awesome what they've been able to do on that airplane to make it as original as it has been made and as lovely as it has been made yeah is yeah you wouldn't want to pay for it but it's great to see <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i mean it's really good obviously 
making sure the engineering skills and that sort of stuff isn't lost as well. It's definitely very easily lost. Um, and it's, you know, there's still things like particularly the, the English wheeling type stuff is there's not too many people that can do that. And that is the thing I always worry that might sort of drop off the back. But I mean, for what it's worth, with time and reading a lot of books and an English wheel and some material, you can, <laughs> it, someone could figure out how to do it. Someone figured out how to do it once. So they, I don't yeah. think, you know, the, the, the big worry of losing skills I think is maybe not as bad as it once was, primarily because the industry at least now has the finite, as I previously mentioned, the sort of financial backing for someone to go, right, well, no one can do this yet, so someone's got to figure out how to do it, so let's get on and do it. And and someone will go, that's fine. You know, I'll, I'll either an employer like me might just say, well, I'll pay you to go and figure out how to do that. Or someone behind the job might say, I don't care what it costs, just mm. make it so. Um, and it's yeah, it's having that pragmatism, I guess, to 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 do that is um, yeah, is what's helping it all move along. And and really, the values of aeroplanes, you know, as the values of aeroplanes increase, so the skill set behind them can increase exponentially, basically. Um, and that yeah, the whole thing just works together. It's why it's maybe slightly more difficult with the jet world, where the aeroplanes are not necessarily going up in value. They're not, they're not going down in value, but they're not going up in value, and they're very expensive things to operate. Um, and, you know, overhauling a jet engine is a very complicated thing to do. Sure. Whereas we're overhauling a Merlin engine. Yeah, it's a, it's a big engine, as you've seen in the tea room downstairs, but it's it's just a piston engine. Mm-hmm. There's nothing overly clever about it. It's just big. Um, so, yeah. it's um, No, it's definitely very interesting times at the moment. And... Um, as as you mentioned earlier, uh, you're an employee. Uh, do you do apprenticeships, or is that something you'd offer? Or something? Um, you'd unfortunately, at, at the moment, no. Simply because we're a small company. Yeah. It's if if you've got an apprentice as such, it's um you need someone to work with them, and then what happens is they slow the person that they're working with down. Understandably, because it it you have to slow down to jobs. teach someone how to do something. Yeah. Um, and because of the way that we do things here, which fundamentally is commercially, you know, we are doing jobs for people where we are paid by the hour to work on the aeroplanes. I can't slow the person down because, yeah, I don't really want to have to bill the customer to do it. No, sure. <laughs> um, there, there will come a time, if we grow a bit more, where we will be able to take on apprentices. Um, there is an element of maybe a lack of understanding in the people that we have had in the hangar that are young that have not been here very long is that you know you're never too important to clean a drip tray i mean i'll go clean a drip tray or sweep the floor or, or whatever in fact it's about all i do other than sign my name relentlessly on maintenance <laughs> releases um the therapy is going and sweeping the floor um but th- th- we have had a few people through that that just assume that they'll be immediately working on a Merlin engine, and of yeah, course, sure. yeah. it doesn't happen. That's not how it happened for me. I mean, I've spent years cleaning drip trays and sweeping yeah. floors and and taking the bins out. You know, whatever it may be, they're all jobs that need doing. If you don't do it, someone else is going to have to do it. Um, paint stripping. I mean, Chris, we do some paint jobs here, a lot of them. Mm. And unfortunately, if you want to do paint jobs, you've got to paint strip. You don't just turn up and put the paint on. Doesn't it look (laughs) lovely? That's the easy bit at the end. Um, But yeah, so finding people that are willing to do that um, is definitely difficult. Mm. Uh, Slightly easier for me when I was younger because I was doing it for free. But if you want to be paid as an apprentice, yeah, unfortunately, it's not necessarily going to be glamorous work. Because actually... The majority of it isn't glamorous work, even for the engineers that are here full time. It's, it seems glamorous, doesn't it? Don't the aeroplanes look lovely? Um, that, that's, that's an interesting thing because I imagine a lot of people listening and probably a lot of people just in general, you know, working on a Spitfire or working on a Mustang. I mean, how amazing yeah, isn't is that? Isn't it great? Yeah. Okay. Come, You're ready? Yeah. Walk, walk through it. I'll tell you what. Take the radiator out of a Spitfire from it being airworthy. And then come see me after, you know, <laughs> see, see see how much you enjoyed getting that radiator fairing off. Because it's a huge, it's a great test, actually, of, of whether someone has got persistence or not. Really? Is go, go take the radiator fairing off a Spitfire and then come back and see me. 
tell me if you still want a job. Um, it's an easy it's, job interview it's for you. A, yeah. <laughs> it's a, and I get the radio, fair enough. <laughs> um, I, so I don't have to do it. So you know, sometimes it will take a day. You know, it's, it's one of those things that's put on in such a way that it's, it, it's a huge pain. Um, and if they enjoyed that, then they can go and put it back on and then come and see me again. Um, and, it, and they might then really hate it. But it's, a lot of it is just, I'm not going to say it's tedious, but it's tedious. It's it's repetitive, um, and yes, the end product is brilliant, and it's you've just got to always remember that you're working towards that end product, and there's elements of everything you do that's incredibly enjoyable, you know, for either be it maintenance, restoration, whatever it is, there's there's enjoyment in there, but you know when you when the oil's running down the inside of your jacket because it's freezing cold in the hangar and you've got the jacket on when you've pulled the sump plug out, it. <laughs> it's a bit tedious <laughs> there, there's moments of pure misery um, <laughs> and that's what makes it all the more enjoyable in the grand scheme of things when you get the good stuff it's really yeah. good um, but certainly in the depths of winter when you've you know dug that bit of locking wire into your index finger for the fourth time <laughs> <laughs> yeah. have you got a swear jar <laughs> <laughs> yeah certainly got a lot of scars on my hands from years yeah. of working on spitfires and all the way up the forearms as well um, it's yeah just what happens you know, it's great. Is there anything you you wouldn't work on, or you would turn down if, or I have, try have and you ever stick? I'm not one to reinvent the wheel. Uh, certainly, try and stick to what I know. Um, primarily because I've got to look after the customer. Mm. You know, I'll, if someone turns up to me and asks me to maintain like a Hawker biplane or something like that, I'm just going to say no because I could unquestionably we could maintain it. We'd have to a learn how to do it. Mm and then B, find all the parts to be able to support it properly. And it just doesn't make economical sense when there's other people out there that, that, that do do it. Um, a lot like I said when we were walking around the hangar, if someone turned up and said, Richard, can you build me a Spitfire? I haven't got anything. You know, yes, I, I could unquestionably build you a Spitfire, but it's going to cost you more money. Yeah, You're better off going and seeing someone that builds Spitfires. Um, but if you've got something maybe a bit odd, like a... 109 or whatever it is you know ideally with one engine in the front um ideally american maybe a mustang would be nice because <laughs> um, <laughs> we like them um th then yeah definitely we that, that's what we do you know if, if you've need your airplane that maybe even looks like an airplane you need it completely restoring that's fine no problem yeah. and that's really our bread and butter you know we do a lot of imports of airworthy airplanes put them on the register make them, you know, go th right through them, make them nice, maybe restore the cockpit, restore the wheel wells, just bring it up to a modern standard. But the aeroplane was airworthy beforehand. That's kind of what we do. Yeah. Um, but we can, you know, as you can see with the, the 109s that we're doing, we can certainly do the structural work if we need to. Um, it's just with where someone's already set up to do that job, I can't. You know, I, I try and look after the people whose aeroplanes we're working on. And, and as we've discussed, it, it is not a cheap thing. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've certainly got to have their best interest in my mind. Um, so they keep me my, my customers. <laughs> um, and and I, I, I think they probably think I'm mental when I send them away, you know, like or, or send out a job that we could otherwise be doing in here. Yeah. Like, you know, Dame LeBen's engines, you know, or the engine cowlings that go around them. I mean you would think that we would be doing that, maybe. We would think about doing engines. I'm not going to do engines. Someone's already set up to do them. So so there's a huge chunk financially of a project that I'm not going to quote-unquote benefit from. Well, so be it. They get their engine at, at the right price, and we get to finish the aeroplane. Sure. When it rolls out the door, everyone's happy. Um, and it speeds things up, you know, divide and conquer. The the places that you see and obviously it's all very clever but that just do everything they do the engine and the airframe and everything and it takes a long time you know and and that's not how we try and do things you know we've got a, again as i said when we walk around the hangar we've got a relatively small hangar as you can see so we need stuff to come and we need it to go yeah um, and if it's just going to turn up and sit around i mean we'll make exceptions things like the tempest i mean that's a passion project for me as much as it is the owner but that came and it didn't go. Um, <laughs> and it sat for a really long time. Um, and then it went. Um, and, and you can make an exception, but you can't have 10 of them. 
Um, if nothing else, I, I think it would be very demoralising for everyone that works here, um, including me, um, that, that something's just been here so long yeah, uh, and it's just not going to get finished or maybe the end's not even in sight yet. Um, so, yeah, I try and avoid jobs like that. Say no to those ones. Um, say yes to most things. Um, you mentioned the 109s. Hmm. Are you happy to talk about them? Because yeah, I think they're absolutely. probably... A lot of people want to know what's going on with, with yeah. I mean, we're building yeah, so. we're building a, a 109 F and a G uh, right now. Um, I mean, I can't say too much about it, but the 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 F is fairly advanced. He says, looking out the window <laughs> at some empty wing jigs at the moment, but it's it's um it they they come along quickly from a structural standpoint, and a lot of the stuff that goes inside them is already done. And that's you know the talk been done in the background while the structural work's happening, rather than building an aeroplane and then going right what goes in it. Mm. Um, we try and sort of do everything at once and then put it all together at the end. Um, so yeah, but they're exciting aeroplanes. You know, they're real aeroplanes. They've come out of um, Russia, very complete. You know, there's a photo of the F just standing on its wheels. You know, with a wing still on and an engine mount on the front. Um, very very complete, but with a Unfortunately, as a lot of them are, they've had a grenade tossed in the cockpit. Mm. With a fuel tank under the cockpit, it tends to make a bit of a mess. So there's a necessity to replace the structure around the cockpit area, mainly the aft cockpit, but structure around the cockpit area. But, but yeah, everything else kind of goes again. I mean, the tails, wings, and, and as you can see, if you look down there, the tail's already done. You know, we've got the tail leg that goes in it. The surfaces are just off being fabric covered now. So, yeah, all quite, ad quite advanced and exciting aeroplanes, you know, it's... Um, yeah, definitely. It'll be really good to to see one fly. You know, there's a lot of um, converted bouchons around, as, as we discussed. And although it's cool and it looks like a Messerschmitt and and, and, and whatever, you know, happy days. Um, it, it definitely isn't a real Messerschmitt, you know, without a doubt. Um, and the effort that goes into making a real Messerschmitt is huge. In fact, to the point that as we as we had a look earlier and we were looking around one of the bouchons, like you know, some of the writing on the I, I, engraved into the the parts is in Spanish. If you, it's not German. No, I'm a boring guy, as you know. Um, <laughs> a, an aircraft spotter with the right job, and I cast iron guarantee you that I could pick a converted bouchon from a hundred yards. Um, it is, mm. if, and, and even if someone had made a really nice job of it, the worst case is I'd need a torch and two minutes, yeah. and I'd point something out to you that was made it so crystal clear that it is a bouchon that's been converted, or even parts of a bouchon are in the conversion that you've done or the rebuild that you've done. I, yeah, it would be glaringly obvious. And the work that goes into making sure that you don't generate that, yeah, is huge. Um, you know, it, we've got, as you can see down there, great for a podcast, um, <laughs> you, can, you can see there's a set of bouchon wings down there with the skins off them, they're completely dismantled. All we've used those for is to set the fixture up to make sure that really all the jigging points are in the right place. We've obviously used the drawings and information as well, but there's no substitute for having a wing you can put in to kind of check everything. And then we've taken the skins off because if we need to make a bit for the Messerschmitt wing, the Bouchon wing component is the same shape. So we can then take a component out of that wing, use it as a pattern to make a replacement for the Messerschmitt wing and then put the Bouchon wing back together. And at the end of all this, just to prove a point, we'll put the Bouchon completely back together and we'll rebuild it as a Bouchon. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, there, there will not be one even drop of Bouchon in that <laughs> If I find one in there at the end, it'll, it'll be soon coming out. And whoever put it in will be dead meat. Um, yeah. So, no, but it's, um, it's an interesting job. Uh, having done, you know, however many it is, four Bouchons, it's it's very interesting to, to get to see the differences, mm. uh, but also it's nice to do a job that's fundamentally familiar to us. Yeah. So yeah, and then we're still doing another bouchon at the moment as well. So with any luck, we'll be rolling out a Messerschmitt and a bouchon. I'll probably paint the bouchon as the Messerschmitt and the Messerschmitt as the bouchon, just to confuse <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> wouldn't it be great to have a Messerschmitt painted as a bouchon? That would be a yeah. That would really <laughs> that would really get me talking, up. wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. So in the warbird world, you know, I'm a car guy and there's a lot of purists out there and a lot of people do things to piss off the purists. <laughs> Is that similar in the aircraft world? No, mercifully not. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are things that piss off the purists, like painting your bouchon as a Messerschmitt. That's a good way to wind people up. But it, 
you know, it's done for a working, you know, the, the aeroplane must go to the air show. The majority of the demographic at an air show is the ice cream liquor, and the ice cream liquor does not, and that's not, I'm not being disparaging by calling them ice cream <laughs> liquors, it's just broad brush. That's, you know, people go to a seafront air show to see some aeroplanes fly around. They don't particularly care what the aeroplanes are. Um, so if you start trying to explain to them what a bouchon is, when they could be a spitfire and a quote-unquote Messerschmitt having a dogfight, that, that's what... And, and from a business perspective, that's why you end up painting your bouchon as a Messerschmitt. Um, you know, I am a purist, and I walk around a lot of restorations of things, including things that we operate, and look at them and go, oh, I wish that wasn't <laughs> like that. But there's a level of practicality that means that it must be. Um, in the same breath, one of the Spitfires I showed you, the Mark 12 Spitfire that we're just sort of finishing off the restoration on, or finishing off, the wings aren't on it yet, but finishing off the <laughs> restoration of, we are doing that completely. You know, our purists would be proud when they look in there. Yeah. Um, and the effort involved in that, you know, should not be uh, underestimated. Um, but no, I mean, I think, you know, as time goes on, people are forever wanting things to be more original. The more original it can be, the better. Um, whether it's original structure like the Spitfire next door MH415, which is 90% original structure, or if it can't be, like talking about the Mark One Spitfires that were built at both Biggin Hill and Duxford, if if it can't be original, make it as accurate as possible to the original spec. Um, and I think they, you know they've done a great job of doing that, and that's yeah. why everyone's sort of accepted that that they are yeah aeroplanes you know. i mean that it's it, on that note again something we, we talked about earlier is the fact that um i think certainly two of the mark ones it's all steam gauges and and original look cockpit and you said you you don't do glass glass no, we're not clever enough like yeah um <laughs> which is great to hear as an enthusiast and as a yeah, purist and, and, and certainly and how we want unfortunately do horrible things like bury the radios horrible for the pilot um, you know, bury the radios in a Spitfire in the old map case so they're down by your left calf, which is, you know, when you start flying through Stansted or Farnborough or something, you wish your radios were not down there. <laughs> but when you park it up then at Goodwood and you're very happy when you shut the map yeah. case and no one can see your radios anymore and all they can see is the original radios. Um, that That's when it's great. But, yeah, I mean, there's certainly been people that have put glass cockpits in things. The Mustang that Rolls-Royce now operate when it was the shark um that had a full glass cockpit put in it and then it had it taken back out because actually it doesn't you know it's it seems like a great idea at the time and those glass cockpits are brilliant you know the cessna i did my commercial in the states was a full glass cockpit and i don't think i would have probably passed that commercial without <laughs> it but um but it it it's brilliant in the right place but uh, the, in my opinion uh, you know a spitfire or a mustang or a whatever cockpit is, is not the place for it um, yeah, um, I'm kind of averse to anything modern, in fact, because <laughs> you know, as I again when we walked around the hangar earlier, I said that Mustang that's up the front there. When it turned up, it had a sort of full monitoring system in it. It was just taking it out. I mean, it it is too much information for these aeroplanes. They were not designed to be yeah. monitored like that. Um, Definitely, you know, we do whatever is required to keep these. And we've been doing it for long enough that we know what is required to keep one of them airworthy. If you have a full monitoring system on there and someone goes flying in it and comes back because they had a little warning light because the, you know, B5 cylinders running at, at 10 degrees too high. I mean, what's the answer to that problem? Okay, well... It's no problem. We'll just pull the engine out and send it off for a rebuild, shall we? Mm. You know, you know, we can clean the spark plug and we can check its compression and we can check the valves are sealing. But, but really, what do you want me to do now? Whereas actually, the cylinder's probably supposed to run ten degrees hot. Or they, you know, I would never know on on the two seat Spitfire down there. It might have a cylinder that runs hotter every ten trips or something. But I don't know. Yeah. I've got a monitoring system on it. And Rolls Royce didn't want me to know. That's the nuances of. That's it. They, built in the 1930s Rolls Royce didn't put a cylinder head temperature yeah. gauge on every single spark plug of that Merlin, because they didn't care. So I don't know. Why do I care? <laughs> and, 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 and maybe people think I should care, but I don't. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's um. There's probably a place for it, and I'm sure that something will turn up. Well, I guess like the 109s. I mean, interestingly, they're going to have. A monitoring system on it because a lot of what how they operate is is electric like the propeller rpm for example is done electronically 
um, and the monitoring system kind of encompasses that. Yeah. But that's primarily because a Daimler-Benz engine is not currently famed for its reliability. Mm. And the chap that's restoring them or rebuilding them has said, well, actually, I think a lot of this is to do with people not necessarily operating them within the given parameters or any problems that have occurred are things that we might have been able to see a country mile in the distance had we had monitoring on it. And of course, it being a direct port injection engine, it is, if you do get a hot cylinder, you kind of need to know because it's not just got one big carburetor throwing fuel and air in and, and the cylinders do whatever they like. It's got direct injection into that cylinder. So if one does start running hot, then the injector's probably half blocked. So, yeah, I guess, as I say, there is a place for it. And funnily enough, I found it. Hard on the braids of Britain, yeah. <laughs> um, just moving away from restorations yep. and onto the actual operation and flying of these. Obviously, you can't sort of compare um, what a restored warbird is like as against the original. But what are they? What are these restorations like to fly? Um, what are the sort of the challenges that you have when, when you're flying warbirds? <laughs> Um, everything's a prototype I think even when you restore a Spitfire now even if you did a Mark 9 and then a year later did another Mark 9 they won't be the same It's it, that's why I say everything's a prototype um, they, there's, they've all got their nuances I mean you certainly read the original pilot's notes as best as you can and, and they'll sometimes allude to what what you might experience on your first flight in something um yeah, it's, I don't know, it's it's hard to say. There's an element of risk involved in it, and, and of course you never quite know what you're about to take off in. But you'd like to hope that it, it, it's very different when you've got the whole drawing set for an aeroplane and you've got the manuals and you've been able to check absolutely everything. You can be pretty damn sure when you take off that you're going to have a usable, serviceable aeroplane. Um, Particularly, you know, when you've tested everything and all that kind of stuff. Now, the only thing I've flown, which I consider an exception, is a, I flew an SE5, an original SE5 that we put together here, an SE5E. Um, that's definitely not my era of aviation. I think I discovered, for me, for me, the cure for wanting to go flying in a World War One aeroplane is to simply go flying in it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you'll never want to do it again. Really? Yeah, ever. No, I'm okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, but it that was a real voyage of discovery because you could read every book you like about how an SE5 flies, but you take off in that particular SE5 because you've got the ability to have the rigging ever so slightly different. Mm. You know, it's, with a Spitfire wing in a jig, once you bolt it on, it, you know that you've got the same thing. If you built it in a jig or that jig that you've got the wing from has built a wing before, you know when you put it on the aeroplane, it can't move, so therefore you will have, it will fly the same. Not necessarily exactly the same, but it will fly primarily the same. Whereas once you get to biplanes with rigging and things like that, it is possible to have it rigged a few degrees out and the thing be an absolute handful. Um, what I did discover was that although you can have your 100-year-old engine looked at by the best people going and give it a clean bill of health when you take off in it five minutes into the flight it may decide to not be okay anymore um, and may start to misfire horribly at almost exactly the same time as the hundred year old bellows in the airspeed indicator pop and you lose your airspeed <laughs> indicator um, so yeah that heads that is the cure uh, for the for the world war one stuff so yeah it's got its nuances i mean it, I've not flown any of that really early stuff where things go the wrong way. And I honestly don't think I could compute that. I struggle enough in an RV7 flying with my left hand rather than my right hand. <laughs> so I dread to think what would happen if I got in something with a steering wheel that you have to do yeah. something with. It, the mind boggles. I'd certainly have to have a damn good talking to by myself in a darkened room <laughs> for three or four days. Um, but yeah, they're, they're all, they all fly like aeroplanes. It's important to remember that you're never, you're not really forging into the unknown. Um, mm, you yeah. know, even if, yes, you are flying a Mark 14 Spitfire that you've just restored, you're not the first person to fly a Mark 14 Spitfire. Mm. The last guy that did it was all right, wasn't he? Um, you hope. Yeah, yeah you hope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you read a lot in magazines about, um, especially comparing different warbirds, and like you say, you, you, you're not 
the first person to do it. No. Does it does it just feel like flying another aircraft? Obviously, there are differences, but yeah, it, you are you know, it, just flying. It, certainly, it was interesting with the Bouchons, which you know I did all the first flights on all four of them, um, and they were all factory built airplanes, and all exactly the same. In all fairness, uh, but the first trip I ever did in a Bouchon was the test flight on that two seat Bouchon after we'd restored it. Um, but yeah, they they just all work like aeroplanes. You know, you pull the stick back and they go up and put this lever forward. They make a bit more noise. It, there's, yeah, I'm not saying there's nothing special about it. I'm not trying to take anything away from it. But the, the the, what might seem a risk externally, is certainly a heavily mitigated risk. Um, and I've not personally found an aeroplane that didn't fly exactly how I expected it to fly. Okay. Um, maybe it means we're doing the job right. Who knows. Mm. Or maybe I've just been really lucky. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, uh, one of the most exciting, certainly personally, I think probably across the board, most exciting things that have come out of here, or in fact, I think just the country in general, Europe maybe even, is the, the Tempest Two that you've restored. Yep. Um, it's a remarkable piece of history. Yeah, definitely, and very unique. Yeah, a great privilege to work on, uh, unquestionably, and and with my family history with that, with the Tempest and that Tempest as well. Um, yeah, a real privilege to see it through to the end. Um, it was definitely a, a slog uh, in places. We learnt a lot. It's a shame we're not doing another one, really, because mm. we learnt so much doing this one that doing another one w would be a lot of the bridges have been crossed. Mm. Um, well, I mean, for, for those who don't know, uh, could you tell us about the, the history of the airframe and, and how it came Ooh, to be? And you're going to ask difficult questions now. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it was built by hawkers and then you know flown briefly and then kind of flew off to malaya and all that kind of bit of the world and eventually then got sold to the indian air force who flew it probably the the most mm. um and then ended up at the end of its service got the wings taken off and put outside as essentially a decoy with a with all of i believe all of the tempest they had bar one which is still in their museum and the wings all just got stacked up in a in a hangar um props were taken off as well and and i think smelted <coughs> is all i can all i can imagine because they're not around um and the tail planes they're gone they're gone too um but the um yeah well, and well then decoy th without any of the yeah don't ask <laughs> um <laughs> I read somewhere they were decoys to imitate jet aircraft hmm with I read without wings. wings. Yeah. Starfighters. Yeah. Very, very, <laughs> very camouflage wings. Um, yeah, and then uh, Doug Arnold essentially went out of Warbirds of Great Britain back in the day, went out to India and was able to buy all of them, um, brought them back to the UK. And then my father bought all of them from Doug Arnold, uh, moved them to our place. Um, he also had a Tempest 5 that he'd managed to do a deal with the Royal Air Force Museum to get uh, that had had a... It had a wheels up in Holland, I think, but it was fundamentally, the whole fuselage was complete. And his, he wanted a Tempest 5. He got the Tempest 2s. They yielded a spare set of wings for, for the Tempest 5, and then they were sold off progressively. Um, he was then killed, unfortunately, while we still had, I think we were still storing a couple of the Tempest 2s and, and had the Tempest 5. But yeah, unquestionably, his aim to get them flying, but once he was no longer with us, not realistic. Mm. Um, so the aircraft was sold and now sits with um, Kermit Wicks over in Florida. Um, still with the engine sitting with it. And, and, you yeah. know, and obviously, as you can watch Kermit's great YouTube channel and see that progress has been made over the years, but it's just slow progress. But they're, you know, it's still moving forwards, unquestionably. Um, yeah, so, so that's kind of... I, I was around when I was a very young boy, circa born to about four those aeroplanes were around so i clambered all over them and then we always had a load of tempest bits kicking around yeah it was an aeroplane i just had an interest in because my father had an interest in it um roll on a few years and, and all the tempest twos that you see that were in india a lot of the restorations were started or i think people just looked at them and thought why is that so cheap it's great it already looks like an aeroplane i'll just blow the dust off and whack an engine in the front and off we go Boy, were they wrong, you know. Um, and, and I think a lot of people have discovered that it's a proper nightmare. Um, this particular aeroplane ended up in Wickenby. Um, best not go into the standard of work that had been carried out on it. Uh, it was then purchased by what is now Fighter Aviation. They commenced the restoration of it at North Weald. It was there for a few years. Then it 
came here, um, Northwood carried on with the engine and we took over the airframe, sort of divide and conquer. Things were sent out, too big an airplane for us to do, exactly as I said earlier. Um, and then as things slowly came back, we sort of pieced together an airplane, made it all work, fitted everything out. And then um, engine turned up, but the carburetor hadn't been overhauled. So then we sent the carb off for an overhaul and had to wait two years. So that's why really? it literally sat for two years, finished. And we've done all the gear swings, everything. It's completely, from an airframe perspective, completely ready to fly. And then two years later, we got a carburetor. And that's why it's been, it's taken so long. Um, but yeah, now, as you say, you know, mercifully now, now flying, um, yeah. which is brilliant. Yeah, it was great. I was here watching it go and with the owner and yeah, we were both collectively very happy to see it take off because we both, you know, it saves us having to talk about when it's going to take off every day Yeah, now that it has. Um, flew to Duxford on its first flight, which was planned because big aeroplane need slightly bigger runway than Cywell. Um And it's done another flight from Duxford and then we're just typical you know new restoration of an airplane built by hawkers uh requires some adjustment so we're just <laughs> doing some adjustments and the weather hasn't been on our side but hopefully in the next week or so it will it'll do another trip and it needs a few more i mean it hasn't got anything drastically wrong with it it just needs yeah. a few trips and it will be done and, and and obviously with the aim of it being out and about this summer but yeah big project yeah. definitely a big project and am um, amazing to see i mean it's 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 just such a rarity and such yeah, a definitely. I don't want to say obscure type but it's one of those it's not a Spitfire it's not a no. Mustang it's something very different absolutely that is just very very cool to see flying and I must say normally everything that rolls out of here I've, I've had some level of I'm not going to say I've chosen the paint job but I've certainly had a heavy level of input into what the paint job is and I really thought it should go into a camouflage scheme but actually that and good. that scheme was the choice of the owner yeah they were dead right it yeah. looks great. It really does. So, yeah. No, I really look forward to seeing it at some air shows, mm -hmm. namely the Cyber Air Show. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but other air shows are available, but but, I'd, um, <laughs> but they're all not as good. But, um, uh, but yeah, I, I, it'll be great to see it getting about the place. Are um, you involved in any other of the Tempest and Typhoon restorations that nope. are going on around the world? <laughs> no, it's, um, yeah, the Typhoon's being done at... at uh, the aircraft restoration company the structurally done at, at airframe assemblies at the moment uh, i've supplied them some parts and um they have a deal where they're using a lot of tooling that we use to make the tempest what whatever will cross over to the typhoon yep. um but no i don't have any involvement mm -hmm. with that the other tempests that are around no we've been contacted but um no they mainly just want supply of of, of documentation but the documentation is readily available and Unfortunately, we spent a very long time accumulating it, and I'm not going to just let it go like that. Yeah. <laughs> they can go find it themselves. It's out there. Um. Um, so that was obviously the Tempest. Now, if we've timed this right with the episode and going out, um, hopefully you should have just revealed your very latest aeroplane, the Mustang. Absolutely, which uh, is a, another one for fighter aviation. Um, having just parted with the um, TF Mustang Contrary Mary, um, we've got this... Uh, quote unquote new Mustang, new to mm. this country, new, yeah. Um, which has been uh, painted up as Jersey Jerk, as you will have hopefully seen. Um, a very shiny version of Jersey Jerk, anyway. But, um, <laughs> you know, shiny's good, isn't it? It, it was just a shame because we painted, we polished up Contrary Mary to within an <coughs> inch of its life and then put it in a container and waited goodbye. <laughs> and it was mm. a great shame, actually, because it looked lovely when we were done. Um, so, no, it'd be really nice to, to roll this out. And, yeah. and Jersey Jerk, not a scheme that's ever been done before. I mean, it's it's um, it's a fantastically colourful yeah. and brilliant-looking scheme, really but I do have to ask a very pointed question. Why did you repaint it from the Australian markings? Uh, from a commercial perspective, yeah. it, you know, if you want an air, an air show in the UK or you want to sell flights in the aeroplane, which is, you know, that that's its sort of bread and butter is selling flights, which is what we do as a company, that is... Our bread and butter is Spitfire passenger flights, Mustang passenger flights. Um, people want to go flying in the thing that they've seen in the films uh, or the thing that they've probably seen pictures of. So, mm -hmm. yeah, European theatre Mustang is what we what we needed it to become. Um, nice paint job, the Australian paint job. Nothing, yeah. Not taking anything away from it, uh, but it's in the bin now. Um, no, I, I, well, <laughs> wrapped I, up I, in polythene. Sorry, I, I, Australia. I, the reason <laughs> I asked that is, we, as we've discussed on the podcast before, like... Just having something different yeah. in, in, in the scene is always nice and maybe there was a bit of a wailing and gnashing of teeth when we 
we found out it was going to be repainted, but yep. it does look good. And now. there's hundreds of pictures of it in that paint job. I mean, it's been in that paint job since like 2002. Mm. Um, albeit it's been repainted once, it was repainted into the same paint job. Mm. And I wouldn't count on that staying as Jersey Jerk forever either. Okay. Um, it, you know, there is absolutely no reason why we can't change the paint job on it again to something else. And that, mm. that has historically always been the plan with any Mustang that we've had. And then, of course, Contrary Mary was such a heavily checkerboarded scheme that other than for film work, it, it never got changed. Yeah. Um, this scheme, still heavily checkerboarded, but might be easier to change. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out. But, yeah, I mean... I, w I wouldn't count on it necessarily staying as sure. as Jersey Jerk, as good as it does look. Anything else? Is there anything you want to add? Any commercial message you want to put? Uh, on? <laughs> <laughs> that, well, that we sell the finest Spitfire flights in the country. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, well, uh, we'll we'll wrap things up there. Um, thank you again for uh, coming back on the show. I mean, we like I said, we never left. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming on and agreeing no to talk to us about ultimate warbird flights and and what you do and your history and everything so um no i've enjoyed it sorry for waffling on so much I, absolutely <laughs> not i won't hear a word of it that's exactly what we want uh i suppose in that case it just remains to say have a very good season hope everything goes well yep. good luck with the show thank you and uh hopefully you'll see us yeah look forward as to many of there. us there as, as possible in spotter's corner yeah spotter's yeah. corner, <laughs> spotter's corner. Too. <laughs> <laughs> get my long lens out um <laughs> So that's been another episode of the UK Airshow Review podcast. Thank you for listening. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at UK Airshow Review. Our website, where you can read all of our reviews and feature reports from over the years, as well as the upcoming SciWorld 2024, is airshows.co.uk. And we have a forum where you can join the very lively discussion and photo threads and many, many other topics uh, about historic aviation, which is forums.airshows.co.uk. Thank you for listening and see you in another episode. Goodbye.